Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia to just being part of doing more than 30 years of morning television and radio. Well, when I dug a little deeper, it turned out there was far more to learn. So in this series, we try to help people fix their sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken and maybe we stumble upon some answers together. This week, we hopefully put to rest at least for the time being, one of those things that's been nagging at me for a while now, namely the relationship, if there is one, where cannabis, CBD, and other cannabinoids meet sleep and insomnia. And we do it with a scientist who's made it the focus of his last 20 years of research. In addition, Dr. Michael Grandner is back from the University of Arizona talking about the latest science from the sleep world. But let's get rolling, if you'll pardon the pun, on cannabis and sleep with Dr. Ryan Vandry from John. Johns Hopkins University. Well, everybody that's on the show, including your colleague, Dr. Richard Allen, uh, get the same first question, and that is this. How did you sleep last night? I slept really well. Um, I've been traveling a little bit, visiting in-laws and sleeping on not-so-comfy beds, so it's always good when I get home. Uh, I sleep in my own bed, and I get some exercise. I played a little pickup soccer last night, so I slept like a log. Nice. I mean, when you're on the road and traveling or, or wherever you happen to be, if, if the scenario is not ideal, do you have a thing you do when you're away that maybe allows you to get some better sleep? I usually stay up really late so that when I hit the bed, I just pass out. Got it. Okay. All right. Um, well, it's interesting because Michael Grandner, uh, I forget how many weeks ago now it was, maybe six weeks ago, we were talking in one of Michael's regular appearances on the show and we got on the subject of cannabis and sleep. And it's something that also came up when we were talking to Dr. Richard Allen, also from Johns Hopkins. And when I asked Dr. Allen about it, um, he said, yeah, you know what? We need a lot more research in this area because uh, – uh, there's there's not a ton of data. But what's interesting to me is that if you go onto the Internet, you know, be it Reddit, Facebook, wherever you happen to uh, commune with the folks, any the amateur sleep experts in all of these areas will say, oh, well, if you're having trouble, you should try some uh, you should try some CBD oil or you should try smoking some pot, whatever, um, claiming that that is the magic bullet that will cure everybody's sleep. And I thought if there's one guy that is more on top of this probably in the country than anybody else, it's you. So uh, I'm excited that you had some room for us today. And I want to just start with the very simple question. Where are we on the science behind cannabis and sleep? Um, we're, that's a, it's a tricky question. So I think we're early in our understanding. We're not at zero understanding. Um, Research on cannabis and sleep has been going on since the 1970s, um, surprisingly. Um, is this official research or is this, this is a research a, that people were, you know? This is, this is official research. And interestingly enough, THC, which is the primary psychoactive component of cannabis, was evaluated as a potential hypnotic medication in the 70s. Um, actually, late 60s it started. Um, but ultimately, it was abandoned um, because it lasted too long. Um, oh. People would have carryover effects and some grogginess and maybe some mild cognitive impairment the next morning. Um, and right around this time was when the newer benzodiazepines and Z drugs were being developed. And so they showed a much better time course of effects than THC, so much shorter lasting, so you, it would help you get to sleep, um, but wouldn't have the next day carryover effects. So what I hear from a lot of people that are extolling the virtues of various cannabinoids is they'll say uh, it helps you get to sleep better. It helps you, it puts you in a, in a state where you'll fall asleep faster. And then there are other people who will say, well, yes, that's true, but the quality of the sleep is lousy. Uh, so any, any, is there data to, to back up either thing? Well, um, there is data to support that it'll help you get to sleep better or faster. And that's, that again is going to be specific to THC. Um, that has not been demonstrated with CBD. And CBD is another kind of abundant 
chemical constituent in the cannabis plant and is also the most abundant um, chemical in hemp. So hemp is a classification of cannabis that's defined by the amount of THC that's in the plant. And why CBD has become popularized is that hemp was legalized at the federal level um, in December of 2018. Um, And it's not just in the sleep world, cannabis and CBD are being extolled as cures for all kinds of stuff. And so we have this interesting scenario where this is um, an industry that has been, it, it was, born in the illicit drug use market and it's become licit and legal, um, but it's not very tightly regulated. And so people are making all kinds of claims um, and marketing and and trying to get people to use it for anything and everything. Um, So there needs to be some level of skepticism with the claims. And as a scientist, I always say, show me the data. What do you got? Um, so I have not seen anything that relates specific to, specifically to the quality of sleep. Um, when I evaluate and think about the claims that people are making about THC, CBD, or cannabis more broadly and sleep, um, I look at, at, at what we know and we have to acknowledge the limitations in our understanding. So I think that from a THC perspective, there's really good research that shows that it can reduce the time to sleep onset. Um, it does alter sleep architecture to some degree. Um, it can, um, reduce REM sleep and increase slow wave sleep a little bit. Um, but the, the slow wave sleep piece is a little bit inconsistent. One study will show an effect and the next one won't. Um, so there's mixed findings there. Um, the other thing that's really limited in understanding the effects of cannabis on sleep, especially as a treatment for sleep problems, is that most of the studies that have been done have been in healthy individuals without sleep problems. Uh, and so um, there have been very, very few studies to specifically evaluate any type of cannabis product as a treatment for individuals with a diagnosed sleep disorder. So that's one of our main limitations in understanding this. And um, when you say diagnosed, diagnosed sleep, sleep disorder, disorder that, that includes, includes obviously, obviously insomnia. Insomnia, any of the parasomnias, periodic limb movement disorders, um, sleep apnea. I, you know, again, the claims from the industry and from individuals who have tried this um, cover the entire spectrum. But we don't have much in the way of really good evidence or controlled research. Um, The other thing when I talk to people about cannabis and sleep is that um, people who by and large are proponents of medicinal or therapeutic use of cannabis or cannabinoids uh, tend to think about it as um, a relatively innocuous, inert thing that just promotes health across the board and will um, endorse daily use for well-being, for treating a variety of health conditions. Um, But when it comes to sleep, it's important to note that um, in the research that I've done and, and what I've seen from research other folks have done is that um, THC is going to behave a lot like other hypnotic medications. It'll probably work really well initially, um, but if you rely on it for daily use for an extended period of time, it may backfire on you. The same way um, use of of, uh, other hypnotic medications typically physicians won't prescribe use of those for any longer than about a two-week period Um, because what ends up happening is you develop tolerance to the effects. Uh, It won't um, help you sleep much uh, beyond a two- or three-week period, and you can develop dependence on it. And so usually you want to use a medication to kind of recover from an initial really problematic um, 
uh, sleep problem, but then you want to adjust your behavior and you want to adjust your environment and do other things that are not pharmacological to help maintain and, and achieve long-term improvement in sleep. It's funny it's when you talk, talk about, about the things, things that, that get, get um, actually, actually, I'll tell you what, before I go any further, further, do you have any earbuds or anything like that that you can pop in? Um, cause I'm hearing me coming back to me through your mic. Uh, I can edit it out of the first, uh, couple of things that we did, like whatever it is that you've already just done that just made a world of difference at my end. Okay. Um, I haven't done anything weird cause I, I was clear as a bell coming through your mic, uh, at first and now I'm much less. So I, I guess I'll, I'll just, I can, I can edit it out. It's okay. Um, one thing I can do is I can turn my volume down and hopefully that'll help. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as long as you can still hear me, that would be, that would be a yeah, huge bonus. No, I, I can okay. hear you fine. All right, cool. Um, it's funny hearing you talk about all the different things that cannabis, THC, CBD oil, all these different kinds of things are, are prescribed for, because I, I'm reminded that, you know, things like cornflakes and Pepsi were also at first marketed as things that would cure a million different conditions and diseases. And then we kind of went, oh, okay, so it doesn't really work for that. It doesn't really work for that. Oh, it's a breakfast cereal. Okay. All right. At least I know where we are now. <laughs> um, so when, when, when we talk about the studies that are out there. And for so many things, you know, you'll read a study and you'll find out that it was an N of 34, um, et cetera, et cetera. Are there any large mass studies that have been done that you're aware of uh, into cannabinoids and sleep? Um, I'm not aware of any that have been completed along those lines and published. Um, most of the studies are small sample sizes, um, lab studies with healthy adults. Um, and, you know, part of the reason for that is that, um, you know, sleep studies are terribly expensive to do. You have to have people come in and sleep in a lab and get hooked up to a bunch of wires and things like that. And a lot of people don't want to do that. And, and like I said, it's very costly to do it. And, um, <clears throat> so it, in the absence of a real clear path for what, up until recently and, and to some degree still is a schedule one drug, um, businesses are not willing to invest tens of millions of dollars into large studies looking at the effect of, of cannabis on sleep because it's still a federally illegal drug. So it presents a lot of regulatory challenges to doing these big high quality placebo controlled trials. And it's interesting to me to hear that as well, uh, because I mean, it, it, it was legalized here in Canada uh, quite some time ago. So I would have thought somebody would have picked up the ball on this side of the border and, and run with it because the, the completely legal cannabis companies here in Canada are making money hand over the fit, hand over fist. And I, every once in a while, the skeptic in me looks at that and goes, well, I wonder if they're not funding any large scale studies because they kind of already know what the results will be and they don't want to pop the bubble. Well, I think there's some um, nuance to that argument. Um, I think that while there would be some level of, of desire to demonstrate, you know, the effectiveness of cannabis for sleep, um, what's the incentive for any of those Canadian cannabis companies to do so? Um, again, if you're talking about a 10 or $20 million study, you show that cannabis helps people sleep. There's no, this is not a single molecular entity that they have a patent on. There are multiple other competitors that can say, look, cannabis helps sleep, buy ours instead. And so the, the protection of the intellectual property <clears throat> is a challenge in the cannabis industry. The other thing, again, comes down to how you use it. Um, and, and, and the incentive for them to demonstrate that it helps sleep when they feel like all of the people that use their product know it helps sleep. And, they, you know, but, you know, again, my, my worry about all of this is the long term impacts. So um, we just recently completed a study where um, 
we recruited a number of people who were had long-term heavy cannabis use and they were looking to try to quit they had challenges in quitting on their own and they all complained of sleep problems in trying to quit and so there's an interesting um interaction there between sleep and drug use generally but cannabis use in particular where um, it seems to me that individuals that have sleep problems are probably more apt to have longer daily heavy cannabis use history into adulthood Um, but when we evaluated the sleep of these folks they while they were using cannabis it was terrible these folks met all of the clinical cutoffs for insomnia and significant sleep problems while they were using cannabis. Um, When they quit, their sleep got worse, but then it recovered over time if they quit. And at the end of the study, they were sleeping better than when they were using cannabis. And so um, there's a there's an interesting thing that needs to be teased apart in that relationship. So one hypothesis is that THC can help people sleep initially, and that drives people with sleep problems to use it and to continue using it. But if they continue using it, especially on a routine nightly basis for some extended period of time, they'll develop tolerance to the sleep promoting effects. And then if they don't use for one night, they get terrible sleep. They have a hard time initiating sleep. You get these really intense, vivid dreams that can be disturbing sometimes. And they think, oh my gosh, I can't sleep without cannabis. I need my cannabis. Cannabis is really what helps me sleep. But it actually could be a withdrawal effect that's showing that they're having problems with sleep. And so, you know, the the withdrawal from cannabis could be misinterpreted as baseline problems, problematic sleep. Um, And that the fact that that recovers when they then use cannabis again the next night that's just returning to a tolerant baseline. And so um, we've seen that recovery from tolerance and dependence on cannabis to sleep can last for several weeks, but if people abstain for several weeks, they do recover. Um, then the question is, is you know, to what degree do people need to get additional treatment to bring underlying insomnia back to a normal baseline and how do you treat that we haven't quite gone down that road or figured that out yet so it sounds like uh and and correct me if i am as i often am wrong um that right now the science would suggest that cannabinoids are kind of like melatonin in that they are able to, at least as far as the science suggests now, perform a specific function and that function uh, can be performed in short bursts for specific reasons and then you got to lay off of it. Because, I mean, it's the same conversation with melatonin. You know, the people who don't say uh, here, uh, smoke some pot or do some, use some CBD oil, uh, the people who don't say that will say, oh, you should be trying melatonin. Melatonin helps me sleep like a baby. Um, but melatonin's only good for specific things and only good if you're doing it in short bursts. Am I, am I close in tying those two things as being similar, at least in terms of their efficacy, short term versus long term? Um, I would say generally speaking, yes, but I would extend it beyond melatonin to include any other hypnotic medication. Um, I think that the signal that we've seen for cannabis and THC in particular is probably a little stronger than it is for melatonin. Um, And we see some other sleep architecture effects that you tend not to see with melatonin. Um, And and one of the big things is, um, is REM sleep and dreaming. So what we see and what we hear from a a lot of uh, cannabis users is that, um, they report not not dreaming or not remembering dreams uh, when they use cannabis. But then there's this rebound effect that happens where when they stop, 
um, there's this resurgence and in really intense dreaming. And what we see from a, a polysomnography perspective is we see this huge bump in the amount of time spent in REM sleep at night that persists again for several weeks. Um, it does return back to baseline after about a month. Um, but the, the memory of the dreams and the intensity of dreams doesn't really come back for as long as we've measured it. And that's been up to 45 days. Um, and so when you think about that from a a sleep perspective and in particular people with, um, sleep problems, um, you think about some of the other populations that gravitate towards cannabis use and one that comes out um, and sticks out is, is our folks with PTSD, uh, where one of the main symptoms of the disorder uh, is re-experiencing of trauma through nightmares. Um, so I think that that's one area where people are really interested in, in that. And um, some research has been done there and, and, and shown that cannabinoids can help um, initiate sleep and reduce the frequency and severity of nightmares in that population. Um, but again, those studies have been very small um, and largely uncontrolled. And I think that that's an area that deserves more research. And I think the other thing that we we want to think through and and um, and consider is, uh, you know, we talk about cannabis broadly, but with the advent of legalization, um, cannabis products have gotten very sophisticated and diverse. And we're seeing not only diversity in terms of the chemical makeup of these products, but also for routes of administration and formulation. And some research in my lab is showing that you get very different effects and and the time course of effects. And a lot of that stuff can vary considerably um, based on whether you're talking about a high THC, low CBD product, a high CBD, low THC product, some product that's got about equal amount of both, and whether you smoke it, vape it, eat it, rub it on your skin, use it as a suppository. I mean, there's just an <laughs> immense diversity. And so ultimately what needs to happen is we need to understand the mechanisms by which all of these different chemical entities um, interact with sleep and then develop formulations that are ideal for different aspects of sleep, whether it be sleep initiation with a shorter lasting formulation, or if it's something where you need to suppress nightmares throughout the night, maybe a longer lasting formulation, and to really understand dose. Um, I'm not aware of any study that's gotten really good precision with respect to dose um, in, in specific treatment of sleep disorders. So who, I mean, and this circles back to the part of the conversation we had earlier, ultimately who's going to end up funding those studies? Because you're right, they are enormously expensive. If the cannabis industry isn't going to, at least in the foreseeable future, uh, fund studies like that, either because they don't need to because their crowd believes it works regardless, or because there's an enormous downside if the study reveals things that they're hoping they don't reveal. Who is going to fund something like that? I mean, because if the government uh, isn't even in favor of, you know, as it is in the United States, federally legalizing, then where are we? What's what's the state of the science going forward if we're going to continue to be limited to relatively small studies? So, again, I think that that starts with um, compelling preclinical and laboratory research. Um, And even though currently the federal government in the U.S. is not keen on legalizing cannabis, that doesn't mean that they're unwilling to fund research to identify a very specific cannabinoid product that has legitimate therapeutic use. Um, I think the NIH here has has shown remarkable interest in pursuing uh, therapeutic uses of cannabinoids, but it needs to be a defined product uh, 
And there needs to be a good rationale for that product and that dose for a specific indication. And I think that's the difference between drug development and a generally legal cannabis market. Um, again, I, I, you know, the, the cannabis businesses um, by and large are not interested in taking any of their products through the drug development process that I've seen. Um, I think it's a little bit of a shame that that's the case. Um, so we would rely on small startups or pharmaceutical companies that have that interest. I think that, you know, as a testament to the readership or the listenership of your podcast, a lot of people suffer from sleep problems. And despite a number of medications being out there for use, melatonin, Z drugs and the like, um, there's still a, a need and a want from the population at large for alternatives to those. Um, so I think that if the science shows that cannabis can be another arrow in the quiver for um, treating sleep problems, there would be um, a legitimate and fairly large market for that. Uh, but again, it has to go through the more traditional um, drug development process where you have a defined product and you're looking at it specifically for insomnia, apnea, periodic limb movement disorder, uh, a very specific um, uh, approval or indication rather. It's fascinating. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad we had this conversation because, like I said, all over the Internet, there are those uh, quote unquote experts. Um, and you don't know if you don't know what their background is. You don't know anything because they've got their fake username that they use on Reddit or Facebook or whatever it is. Uh, and, and they will suggest to you that, oh, no, this is the solution that works for everybody. You just got to try it and you just got to, you know, get the get the right stuff sort of thing. And and every time I have engaged one of those people to suggest that the science doesn't necessarily back it up. Um, you know, it, it goes down a rabbit hole of, well, it works for me. And so I'm sure it must work for everybody. They just, oh, they don't want to, you know, whatever their argument is. And so I'm grateful that I finally have a way to say, here's where we are uh, when I when I continue to engage those people and just point them to this conversation um, to either inform or um, dissuade one way or the other. But it sounds like, as Richard Allen said a couple months ago on the show, there's a lot of work still to be done and, and a lot of research that still needs to happen. Yeah. And the, 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 the you know, the rebuttal to that person is not to discount their experience. Um, you know, I don't doubt that people have um, ex have achieved incredible benefit from their use of cannabis uh, for a variety of therapeutic reasons. But um, you have to acknowledge that there's not a single drug that works for everybody for any one problem. And that goes across the board in medicine. We are very different people. And the purpose of research is to identify how to best utilize the medications that are at our disposal to treat individuals. Um, so nowhere in medicine now do we take a, well, this works for everybody, we've solved this problem. It, we have to identify who certain treatments are likely to work for, how do we predict what treatment's gonna be best. And again, we want precision because Right now, if someone gets great benefit for treating their insomnia with cannabis, what's the likelihood that someone living on the other side of the country can get that exact product that worked really well for that person and it works exactly the same way? There's very right. little standardization in cannabis products right now, um, very little quality control, and, and the products that are available are not universally available. I think things in the cannabis industry are trending in the right direction of cleaning up the quality control issues, but there are still a lot of products that are not reliable, uh, that are not um, as advertised with respect to chemical makeup. Um, and we've been part of multiple studies that have demonstrated that. Um, so until we get consistency, reliability um, in the products and, and targeted research to understand 
who's likely to benefit for what specific types of sleep problems and how best to use it to minimize dependence, withdrawal and the like, dosing, formulation, you know, that's what's needed to take this to the next step. Ryan, I'm grateful you made time for this today. Um, and, and, and thanks again for, for, for providing some clarity on what, if you'll pardon the pun, was becoming kind of a hazy uh, issue for, for some people. And, and I'm grateful we, uh, we have a, a clearer path forward, at least on what to look for. No problem, Neil. It's been my pleasure. There you go, Dr. Ryan Vandry from Johns Hopkins University. If you go to our website at thesnoozebutton.com, you'll find links to all kinds of studies and fascinating information. If this is a topic that you want to follow up on, we'll give you all the links you need for the latest research on the relationship between cannabis and cannabinoids and CBD and insomnia and sleep and We'll see where the research goes from here. In the meantime, let's get to the latest in sleep science from this week and uh, a fun curveball that we're going to throw at Dr. Michael Grandner here. So I asked around and I've gotten special dispensation to allow him some wiggle room to get out of answering the requisite how did you sleep last night question. However, for the return of Dr. Michael Grandner, I have another question to throw at you before we get to whatever's on your mind. And right. it centers around a tweet that uh, reads from you as the following. Uh-oh. I definitely miss being behind the mic as a radio DJ for WITR897. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know. Everyone's been to college once, you know, there's a, it, there, so, so when I was in college, um, actually went to the university of Rochester, but the really cool radio station in Rochester is actually RIT station. And so when I was, when I was in college, yeah, I, I, I really, I was really into music and, and I really enjoyed, uh, playing songs on the radio. It was really awesome. And their, their, their station, I don't know what it's like today cause I haven't been there in ages, but they had the biggest music library I'd ever seen. I mean, they had everything. It was so awesome. We could play all kinds of stuff. And so what brought you to a conversation about being a radio DJ on Twitter? <laughs> yeah. So, um, there was a, another sleep person had posted, said, Hey, sleep people, what are some songs? about sleep, you know, or sleep in the title or something. Let's put together like a Spotify playlist or something. And then like people were putting up like Enter Sandman and and stuff like that. And um and I'm just thinking like, oh cool, there's 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 various sleep songs. And so I was I was starting to post some and um you know, you could tell by the age of the songs like when I had time in my life to listen to lots of new music. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, no, it was fun. And it was fun sort of like digging out all this old stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's that one. Oh, yeah, and there's that one. Uh, that uh, was fun. Did, did, did Fifth Dimension, I did, last night I didn't get to sleep at all, make it into the list anywhere? No? Yeah, no, wrong generation for me, I guess. Right, right okay, all right, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is funny, though, because when now that you bring it up, um, I'll, I'll include a link in, in the show notes and on our website for this episode. Uh, somewhere on the Snooze Button website, there is a great argument starter because one day, about a year ago, I declared the all-time 15 best songs about sleep. Oh, cool. And every once in a while, somebody posts a link back to it, and it apparently has become a terrific argument starter. It wasn't my <laughs> intention, but uh, that's where it is, so I'll make sure it's in the show notes and stuff. Um, okay, so that set aside now. Yeah. Uh, cool uh, radio DJ guy. Um, I mean, I'll use my old radio voice. <laughs> wow. Okay, see, it's yeah, better yeah. than mine, and I'm, I do it for a living. Um <laughs> Talk to me about what's on your mind as far as uh, the sleep world is concerned. What's new that's got your attention? Yeah, sure. I mean, so one paper that that I just um, just saw this week that seemed, I think just came out um, is from uh, Ken Wright's lab. So Ken Wright is a researcher at the University of Colorado. He is one of the the best sleep researchers in the world. His stuff is really, really interesting and cutting edge. He's awesome. Um, and the, the first author in this is, is Chris. Deppner, one of, one of his trainees, and basically what they did was, so I'll read you the title, and then I'll tell you what it means. So the title is, uh, and I'm sure every, all your listeners will find this extremely fascinating, uh, <laughs> Developing Preliminary Blood Metabolomics-Based Biomarkers of Insufficient Sleep in Humans. And sounds it, it sounds, you know, fancy and sciencey, and you know how I am with, with fancy sciencey language and how it actually sure. means something relatively simple. Basically what this is saying is, 
Moving, like, let's get a, t- getting a step closer to a blood test for sleep deprivation. Okay, wait a minute. I'm going to stop you right there. Yeah. Because on the second episode of this show that we ever did, which is like a year ago now, coming up on a year ago, um, I'm talking to Dr. Adrian Owen, OBE, from uh, <laughs> Western University, University of Western Ontario, and... That was one of the things that we got on that topic of wouldn't it be cool if there were sort of biomarkers where you could just tell from a simple blood test or something like that if somebody had insufficient sleep. Because we talk about markers uh, that sleep impacts that are markers for things like Alzheimer's and and all those sorts of things. But right now, I guess the closest thing we have until you start telling me about this now are tests of cognition and things of that nature. But now there's – Blood tests? Yeah, so so um, it's still true that the best way to tell if someone is sleep deprived is not to ask them because they probably have no idea, um, but it's to test them and see, well, do you look sleep deprived? Um, and on, on cognitive tests, but also, you know, maybe looking at things like, you know, immune function and things, but cognitive tests are probably the most readily available. But this idea of a blood test um, or even a breathalyzers, but that's a whole other rabbit hole for sleep deprivation is something that, that the field has been chasing for, you know, well over a decade now for obvious reasons. One is um, people respond to sleep and sleep loss differently. If we could find a way to objectively um, at least get a ballpark of how, how sleep deprived your body is, we might be able to... Um, use that information to say, hey, you need to get more sleep or, hey, you're fine. Um, If someone crashes their car on the side of the road, um, you know, you test to see if they have alcohol and drugs in their system. Maybe we could also test to see how sleepy were they. Was that what happened? Um, So so it could be really, really useful. But also there's there's another as a scientist, there's another side of this coin that if we get a blood test that that accurately predicts whether someone needs more sleep, um, that would actually tell us a lot of really useful stuff about how the body reacts to insufficient sleep. So whatever is different, you know, that can that can give us clues as to what are the main effects going on in the body. So so this is a this has been something that researchers have been chasing for a long time. And so what this lab did is they took. Um, a bunch of otherwise healthy people put them through a protocol where they um, they were sleep restricted for to down to five hours um, for about five days, and then they were allowed to sleep um, for nine hours for five days. And actually, which of those five day periods were in a random order? So it wasn't like everyone got the sleep deprivation first and longer sleep later. It was it was in a random order, so that when they pooled all the the, the data together, there was no order effect. It washed out. So they're trying to see like, okay, what does a what does the same person look like sleep deprived versus awake? And the way they were looking for a blood test is normally when you look for a blood test, you're looking for a specific uh, marker. Like you're looking for, you know, how much calcium is in your blood or how much magnesium or how much fat is in your blood, like cholesterol, HDL, LDL. You're looking for a specific thing. Now, all of the searches for a specific thing that's a marker for lack of sleep have pretty much failed. Like nothing seems to be specific enough to sleep to be remotely reliable. So what they did is they took an approach called metabolomics. And um, the, the, the two minute rundown of what metabolomics is, is it's looking at the blood holistically. So as your body processes things, whether it's food or energy and all, all these cellular processes going on, um, it produces metabolites. So, you know, most people would know like tryptophan as a protein gets converted into serotonin and serotonin as a protein gets converted into melatonin. And, you know, so things like that, as it gets, as it gets broken down, it becomes other things. And so those other things that, that get things get that get broken down into are called metabolites because your body metabolizes them into these other products. And um, the metabolomics is so the omics means like like oma means like a body like soma it means a body. So metabolomics means the whole body of all the metabolites floating around in your blood somewhere. So what they do is they take a sample of blood at a specific time 
and they say, all right, let's run this through a whole mass spec. Like people have seen these on TV where it shows like the whole, all of the different molecular weights of, of everything in there. They don't know what it is, but they could see here are all the different molecules in here of varying amounts. Uh, there's lots of noise in the system, but they look to see for sp look for spikes. And then what they did is they looked at the same people um, while rested. So we could see what in the blood changed from between sleep deprivation and being well rested. And what of those changes were consistent across everybody? Was there anything that sort of universally seemed to change from, from one status to the other? And, um, and so w without knowing where to look, you know, they call this discovery science, you know, without knowing where to look, they looked at the whole landscape of, of, you know, I don't know how many thousands of potential things they looked at. Um, and, and what eventually they found was there were a few subsets of different molecules that seemed to reliably pop up over and over again across people that, that differentiated sleep deprived and um, not sleep deprived. And when, when they looked to see, okay, what are these molecules probably? What do they, what do they do? What are they from? Um, and it looked like there were a few important cellular systems that seemed to jump out as being particularly important. Um, and in particular, it seemed to have to do, a lot of these seemed to have to do with immune function and, um, and lipid um, synthesis and transport, uh, lipid functioning, um, and in general, basic cellular metabolism. So, um, so it, immune system, everyone knows about the immune system and how it's so important in, in recovery and, and regeneration, and that's really tied to sleep. So that was, that was interesting. Um, that another big a cluster seemed to be around lipid um, functions was interesting because when most people think of lipids, so lipids just means fats. And so when we think of lipids in the blood, we usually think of things like high cholesterol or triglycerides or something, but the body uses lipids. The reason why lipids in the blood are an issue in humans is because they're really, really important biologically. So the body has lots of protection mechanisms to keep blood fats high, but not try and make them low um, in general. And so, and, and one of the things that happens is that, um, these fats in the blood, like cholesterol, for example, are really, really important for cellular repair and regeneration and, and building cells. It's actually really important. So like all the cell membranes are, have lipid layers in them. And so it makes sense that lipid creation and processing and transport being upregulated, being sleep dependent, it seems uh, to make sense if sleep plays important roles in, in regeneration, for example. And what's, what was particularly interesting to me is that this seemed to mirror a study that was done back a little over 10 years ago in mice, um, where this was a, a guy named Mac Makowitz who's, who led this, um, and he's now at, at works at the NIH. Um, but uh, what they did is they looked in mice, basically asleep mice and awake mice at the same time to see what happened. Um, and, and what they could do in mice, they actually could open up their brains and see what happened, what, what genes were active during the night and quiet during the day and, and vice versa. And they found something similar, that, that this idea of cellular maintenance, and especially on the cholesterol pathway in general, seemed to be really highly sleep dependent. So anyway, I, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but this paper was really cool because it doesn't really, it doesn't yet give us a blood test for sleep deprivation, but what it says is, first of all, a blood test for sleep deprivation is probably not going to be one thing. It's going to be, it's going to be a configuration of a whole, of probably dozens of different markers in particular orders um, that, that all together sort of give a signal where any one doesn't seem to do enough. Um, but it also points us to reminding us that what sleep does in the body is very broad and has a lot to do with just basic maintenance of, uh, of function on even the cellular and molecular level. And hopefully in the future, we'll get to the point where it's a much more, maybe a point of care blood test of, am I sleep deprived? Am I too tired to work? Am I too tired to drive? I mean, there's great implications here, uh, but we're not there yet, but this is that next big step.
It's funny that you say, uh, you know, I know I rambled on a bit there. Um, I mean, this is fascinating stuff for me uh, because I'm, I'm, as you're talking about it, I'm remembering the conversation from what, if you want to go look it up, is episode two, but I'll, I'll post a link to it as well, where we literally did. We, we talked about the idea that a sleep-deprived driver can be just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than a drunk driver. And so yeah. then I, I, because I'm kind of a goofball and a clown, as you've come to know, I posted, <laughs> I, I paused the idea to Adrian Owen, uh, wouldn't it be great if we could have a breathalyzer for sleeplessness? And and we, it would kind of force people to approach things like driving in a more responsible manner because people don't drink and drive because it's irresponsible and dangerous. Well, if getting into your car on three hours of sleep uh, when you're nodding off behind the wheel is just as dangerous, it would be interesting if people yeah. were nervous about doing that in case they got caught. It's It's fascinating to me. I love this idea. And, and not even, I mean, like from, from a law enforcement perspective, like it could be huge in terms of public safety, but even if I were a shift worker and I had a question, I was like, you know, am I good to drive? You know, it'd be great if I could have a test to, to figure yeah. that out. If I were a trucking company or if I were a truck driver and I'd pulled off along the side of the road and, and I want to know, am I safe to drive or not? Or do I need to take a break? Like that would be a really useful. Well, and it's interesting, too, because we've had this conversation before about how there are people who need, quote unquote, need, air quotes, um, eight and a half hours of sleep a night. And there are other right. people who can get by on only six and a half. And right. something like this would be able to help people identify what their actual optimal level of sleep would be. Oh, this is huge. I love this. Yeah. I mean, it's really exciting. That's why that's why this was super exciting to me that. Like, it's not like I wouldn't shout from the rooftops. We have a blood test for sleep deprivation yet. But but this is saying like this is this is helping to point the way. At, and this is just the next big step um, on that path. That's spectacular. OK, so what else is in your head? So um, a couple other things on my mind this week. One thing um, one thing in particular that sort of jumped out from from a sleep perspective is um, this thing that that this thing that we've been doing, the seminar we've been doing, um, there were, there were a couple of interesting things that came up this week. So, so we have this free seminar. It's not, it's more for academics and scientists and clinicians, but I mean, anyone can, can jump in. Um, but you know, in this past week, you know, we had, um, we had a couple people present and there, there were a couple things that came up that really got me thinking in terms of how to approach, my own uh, my own work. One of them in particular. Um, yesterday we had a presentation on something called brief behavior therapy for insomnia, and basically what that is, it's it takes some of the core parts of how we treat insomnia in clinic, and sort of distills it down to like what if you don't have time, like what are the absolute core functions, core features that if you have a very limited amount of time and place, how do you, what, what is what is the best bang for your buck that you can do? Obviously, it might be the case that doing the full thing might be better, but if we can distill it down to some core features, you know, what works the best? And, you know, this has been around for a few years now. Um, it's sort of an academic exercise because in the real world, you know, it's not like, well, you can, you're only here for three sessions or two sessions and two phone calls or four sessions or eight sessions. Like you see people until they stop coming or until they're better. But to try and figure out how this stuff works, you know, we, we, we try and, and study this systematically. And I guess it never really jumped out to me as much as it did yesterday, um, the lecture from uh, Dan Bicey from Pittsburgh, just really about how the core of insomnia um, the core of treating insomnia really is adjusting um, adjusting people's experience with their sleep. And so he used he used a really cool analogy that I, I'm never going to forget. And he talked about uh, insomnia judo and how, how this idea of using your opponent's strength against them. And there's a technique that we use that that he sort of flipped around backwards that that I thought was really interesting. So one of the things we do when we treat insomnia, we say, all right, you're spending eight hours in bed, but only like six hours of sleep. All right, spend six hours in bed, see if you can fill it. And what happens at first is that by restricting the amount of time that people are spending in bed, they you know, they don't sleep and that makes them sleep even less than normal, which makes them even more sleepy. 
And usually in clinic, the way we deal with this is we try and like help people with their sleepiness and help people cope with it and, and assure them that, that, you know, soon it'll get better. And, and, you know, we're, we're tidying up their sleep where we're getting rid of all sort of the, the, the loose bits so that we're distilling their sleep to its core and then we can expand it and all this stuff. But this idea of using that sleepiness as part of the treatment was the way he described it. I thought was really interesting where, you know, the patient says, yeah, but if I if I follow these directions and actually sleep less, I'm going to be really tired. And his reaction was what I say is great. Um, we have now taken you from being unable to fall asleep to now being unable to stay awake. And we're going to use that extra sleep pressure that you've built from the night before against your own insomnia. You know, we're going to use the consequences of that insomnia against itself as as further ammunition to take it down. Um, and, you know, he had this image of of these fighters. And, and I really just thought that was really evocative, where a lot of people with insomnia are afraid of sleeping less. And rather than being afraid, how about we turn it around and say, well, if you sleep less, maybe you'll fall asleep faster and that'll help your body get back to the point where it can sleep. So I thought that was that was another thing I've been just noodling on some of these on, on some of these metaphors, like where the other, um, you know, in terms of how to communicate about sleep to patients is something that that I, I find very interesting. And I always like learning some of these new metaphors. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. Uh, and that's a lot to digest. It's a lot of fun stuff to look up and we'll make sure we post the links to both of those, uh, resources, uh, cause it's always good reading when Mike, when something crosses Michael's radar that gets his attention, you know, it's good <laughs> stuff as always, my friend, thanks for the time this week. I appreciate it. Of course. Of course. Talk to you soon. There you go. Dr. Michael Grandner from the university of Arizona. And he's back next week with more on the latest from the sleep world. We've got some great guests lined up for the near future, but if you happen to be in the sleep world, you're doing research and you want us to know about it, you'd like to come on the show as a guest, we'd love to have you. Uh, you can just drop us a line. My email address is neil at the snoozebutton.com. It's N-E-I-L at the snoozebutton.com. Would love to hear from you. Lots of information waiting for you on our website if you want to learn more about how to support the show, both with reviews and in other ways. You can do that, the snoozebutton.com. In the meantime, we're back next week with another episode of the Snooze Button Podcast. And until then, my name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you?